the scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. As you find that, you can stand, and I will read. First Timothy 3.8 Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let, let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, Faithful in all things, let deacons be husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their children, and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'll pray. Lord, thank you again for your word, for the great privilege, Lord, that you've given us to gather together in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ to worship you, to have your word read, heard, and preached, and heeded. And Father, we pray that that we would be those who hear and obey, that we would be doers of your word, Father, by the grace that you supply through your spirit. Thank you for all that you want to say to us, and Lord, we pray that our hearts would again be encouraged and strengthened in Christ through this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Appreciate you all being understanding and supportive of Patsy and I taking a few days off this past week. We had a good time um, of rest. And highlight of it was being able to see our new grandson, Nathan and Davina, have had another baby. So that was great being with them. Saw them twice, and um, the baby's healthy, mom's healthy, baby even slept eight hours through the night, the night before we last saw them, so that's great. And Michael and Brooklyn aren't here, but they're announcing also that she's expecting again, so that's great as well, keep them coming. Well, we've been looking through um, First Timothy, and the last time we were looking at elders, spent two Sundays looking at elders, and now it's deacons. There are only two offices that the um, New Testament recognizes for the church, for the body of Christ, and those are the offices of elder and deacon. There is not a third office of pastor. So we looked at that. A pastor is an elder, and elders are pastors, um, and that is to be their mindset. And so the deacon is the other office. It's an office that came into being um, because of problems that arose in the church. So it's kind of through the back door um, that this office came into existence. And so to get the context of that, we have to go back to Acts chapter 4, where everything is going great. Church is exploding. Brand new entity. Many people in Jerusalem are putting their faith in Christ, and the Spirit of God is strongly at work in these new believers' lives. So in Acts chapter 4, we're told in verse 32, "...and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. And so that's the backdrop. And everything is wonderful, spirit-filled, generosity like the world has never seen, selflessness. And the apostles were, it seems from this verse, they were responsible at these early stages for distributing everything that was being given um, to the church. So they would sell their properties, bring the proceeds, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So it would seem that at least from the beginning here, the apostles were very involved in the distribution of all the money that was coming and making sure that all the needy in the church were having their needs met. That didn't go so well. It was, I guess, too many people coming to Christ. Not that you can have too many people coming. Too much money coming in. Too many people without, with, with great need. And the apostles, um, which were the early phase of the eldership that we now have in the, in the New Testament church, were overlooking people. And obviously it would not have been intentional. But when we come to chapter 6 of Acts... We're told now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And it would seem that in effect they've been doing that. The money's coming to them. They've been distributing it, so they're the ones that have been in charge of this um, practical ministry of meeting people's needs. And it's become too much. And unintentionally, they have been overlooking people. We don't know why. We don't know how it happened. And I find it um, uh, instructive that, they, that the people who are coming and complaining on behalf of the Hellenistic widows are not saying why it's happened. And that's important. It doesn't matter why it's happened. They don't need to presume. They don't need to read um, intention into this or motive into this. It's just the fact. It's happening. And what they're actually assuming is that it's not intentional, but it's unintentional. And, and so they're, putting, um, they're, they're looking at it um, in a positive way and not a negative. Maybe it was a prejudice issue. Kind of doubtful. But they could have thought that. Hellenistic Jews are those that are, have been raised in Greek areas, and their first language is Greek, and they may not even have spoken Hebrew. So maybe there is a prejudice issue going on here. Maybe it's just simply a language barrier. Maybe it's a distance problem. Maybe these widows, these Hellenistic Jews... Jewish widows didn't live in the same regions, the same neighborhoods that the other widows lived in because they were Greek-speaking versus Hebrew-speaking. Maybe it was just poor administrative practices. We aren't told. And so the best thing to do is what these folks did, and they just said, it's happened. 
We don't need to read into it. We don't need to give any big explanation or, or, or try to understand why it's happened as though it's been intentional. They assume the best. They come, they focus on the facts, and they inform those who are able to address the problem, those in authority. That is three good principles for handling situations that come up. Assume the best, focus on the facts, and go to those who are in authority and can do something about the problem. There were no threats, there were no ultimatums, there were no assumptions, other than that these apostles, the equivalent of the modern-day elder, in that they were the, the overseeing body, pastoral body, that they would want to know and are probably simply ignorant of the situation. It also tells us that leaders are not all-knowing. Ignorance is not always due to negligence. They can't know unless someone tells them. Um, Every time I come across a situation like this in Scripture, and and it reminds me of of the role that I've had at His Hill um, for these past number of years, and, and, and because we're a small community, sometimes there's the assumption that when the students know something, I know it. And a lot of times that is true. And sometimes, in fact, I will know something even before they do, which is always amazing to me and to them. But there, there are times when they all know it and I don't. And they assume that I do know it because we're a small community. And then if I'm not addressing it, some problem, then they think that I just don't want to deal with it. And so it becomes a bigger problem. We had a situation one year where we had a staff member that was going out drinking with students. And, um, and one night got arrested while driving under the influence and thrown in the Bernie jail. And I knew nothing about it. And it was probably the most difficult year we've ever had. And, and I couldn't understand why these students weren't responding to anything that I said. And then at the end of the school year, we were just starting summer camp, and I found out what had been going on. And it had been happening all semester, all, all year. And I fired him on the spot. And this was before internet and email, and also I sent a letter out to all the students saying, I didn't know, I've just found out, and I've dealt with it. I wish you'd let me know long before this. And it cleared the air. But I didn't know. And so the point is that the leadership wants to know. They want to be involved. But there are things that are simply sometimes not going to be brought to their attention. Everybody can just assume they know when they don't know. So assume the best, focus on the facts, and inform those who are in a position of authority. Leaders are not all-knowing. And sometimes they just don't know because they haven't been told. This also tells us that every situation in the church is of concern to God. And every problem has the potential of dividing the church. And usually it's very small things that can have huge um, potential for division in a church. And so the leadership needs to not ignore those things, but get involved with it and address those things. But in, in how they address it is very instructive here because that leads us back to 1 Timothy 3 with deacons. Now, there's nothing specifically here that says they chose deacons. 
But the job description of the men and, and, and the actual verbs that are being used concerning these men are the words, are, have as their root the same word that we get the word deacon from. And so the great consensus of the church has been that these men were serving as the first deacons. And it's from this situation that the church later just formalized that as an office in the church. We need these kinds of men to help the elders in carrying out their responsibilities. And so in verse 3, it says, still in Acts chapter 6, But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation. Now, there's nothing um, set about the number seven. And so that tells us that, there again, we have freedom before the Lord to determine um, how all this is going to be fleshed out in any given church. And so I think they chose seven because these men had been probably themselves administrating all this themselves. And they had a very good handle on the size of the problem and the amount of men it would take to address the situation. And so they didn't just say seven sounds like a good biblical number. They were very, very concerned with this situation, intimately involved with it. And they knew they had done their homework and knew this is how many people it's going to take to address this situation. And so then it says, of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. In other words, every situation not only is is loaded with potential for division, but it also needs to be addressed by people who are walking with God. Spirit-filled men, men of the spirit, men of wisdom, godly men who know what it means to live from Christ and and to live the Christian life as God has intended. Because God doesn't make a division between spiritual and secular. And he's saying, this is a spiritual matter. And it's not just a a physical matter, a secular matter, a a common matter. That every matter is is of concern to God. And then when you handle any matter according to the flesh rather than according to the spirit, you're not going to get the result that you want. So if you want life and peace, which is the fruit of the spirit then you better get men who are walking in the Spirit. Because if they're living according to the flesh, as Romans 8 says, then you're going to reap what is true of the flesh, death. And so you can do the right thing, address a physical, practical need, and yet put the wrong men in charge of it, and you're going to end up with a result that's going to still do what you are trying to avoid, divide the church. Because you've got, you're doing the right thing, with people who don't know what it means to live in dependence upon the Spirit, seeking Him for the wisdom that they need. We've all experienced that. When we've gone to people, we felt like we needed to talk to them. It's our job to talk to them. And yet we go to them out of good motive. We go to them out of maybe even loving concern, but we are not being led by the Spirit. And it blows up in our face. And it had been better if we had just kept our mouths shut than to be moved by our passions, by our emotions, even by our concern, but not to be moved by the Spirit of God. And so these men wisely said, this is not just a trivial issue. There are no trivial issues with God. Every matter, God wants to address it from His Spirit. And not just saying, turn us loose and say, do what you think is best. But we're to live in that place of dependence upon Him. So they choose seven quality men. And of of Stephen in particular, we're told in verse 5 that he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. 
verse 6, and they brought, before, brought these men before the apostles, and they prayed for them, and they laid their hands on them, and they turned them over to walk in the Spirit as they knew that they would, and to handle this situation according to the Spirit and the wisdom that the Spirit of God would give. That brings us to 1 Timothy 3. So now, Paul is instructing young Timothy, not only do you need to appoint elders in the church, but you need to appoint deacons. Now there's a lot of um, variety in the church on what deacon roles are. But there should not be any variety on who they are. What kind of men they are to be. And there are nine traits that are listed here that must be true of those who serve as deacons. The first is, verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity. Men of dignity. This was also true, is to be true of elders. Um, It is to be basically a man who is worthy of respect. A man who is worthy of respect. He is not to be double-tongued. Probably the simplest way to take that is there is a basic integrity of speech. What he says to one person is what he will say to another person. He doesn't um, just speak to please. And when you are in positions of, of responsibility where you're dealing with people, interacting with people, having to handle the problems and their complaints, it is a temptation to say what people want you to say. And to say what you know they're wanting to hear. And then when you come and face the next person and his complaint is different, you do the same thing and you end up saying two different things on the same issue to two different people. You're double-tongued. So this means he needs to be the kind of man who's willing to, to not be cowardly. And when situations come to him, he will speak the truth in love. Even though he knows it may not be what that person wants to hear. And when that person is walking in truth and his words are being governed and guided by what he knows to be true, then he's not going to say one thing to one person and something else to another person. You're going to get the same thing from him, whoever is talking to him. He's not double-tongued. There is integrity of speech. He is to be one who is not addicted to much wine. That was also true of the elder. I take it, as I said before, that that means there shouldn't be any addictions in his life, whether it's alcohol or drugs or anything else, but he is to be walking in the freedom and the liberty that God has saved us for. Not addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. He's going to be handling money. He will be dealing with people's very practical needs, and he's going to be privy to inside information going on in people's lives that perhaps even the elders don't know about. And so it's very important that he not be greedy or covetous or looking for some way to take advantage of the situation that he's he's in as a deacon. That he not distribute church funds in a way that benefits himself or favors those that he favors rather than, again, coming to the Spirit of God and saying, God, what do you want this church to do? And again, he's working in concert with other deacons, so it's not just one guy making all these decisions. But Lord, what is your interest here? What are you wanting us to do? Who are we to help? How are we to help them? How much? How often? 
And so they're, they're not just going from their own hearts and their own experience, but they're men who are listening to the Spirit of God on these things. And then verse 9, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery of the faith is most likely a reference to the truth of the, of the gospel and the truth of the Bible that has been handed over to us. So these must be men who know the truth and who embrace it, but their lifestyle reflects it with a clear conscience. There's no quicker way to defile your conscience than to know the right thing to do according to Scripture, and you don't do it. And so these are to be men who not only know the Word, but they are living in accordance with it. Their conscience has not been seared and has not been defiled by violating what they know to be what God is saying in His Word. So if God says in His Word that He does not show partiality, well, these men better not be showing partiality in their distribution of the funds that they're responsible for. If they do, then their conscience is not clear. And then verse 10, and let these also first be tested. Maybe today we would say do a background check on them. It doesn't mean it has to be legal. Though sometimes, I mean, if, it, if you don't know a guy well enough that you need to do a background check on him before you put him in this position, then you shouldn't be considering him for being a deacon. We ought to know each other well enough to know that a legal background check, criminal background check is not even necessary. But he needs to be tested. Most churches don't have a formal way of doing that. We don't here at Bernie Bible. But it is something that we are a small enough church, we can watch each other for a long time. And, and see what's going on in the person's life. Ask questions, relate to each other. And, um, and if there's still questions, then we try to ask those questions. He needs to be tested. Let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Again, that's a term that says basically nobody can have anything on this person. The devil or anybody else in the church or anybody in society. And so it means above reproach not only within the body of Christ but also outside the body of Christ. This guy has nothing on him. Nothing that can be grabbed hold of to bring him down and bring reproach upon him, his family, or the body of Christ. Skipping verse 11 for a minute, then verse 12, let deacons be husbands of only one wife. Again, same standard as an elder. And I take this, and the church has historically taken this to mean, as we looked at with elders, that he cannot be divorced and remarried. It would certainly apply to polygamy as well, and it would apply to being a flirtatious man who is not of just not has a single eye for his wife, but he's also looking at other women and, and, and flirting with women, he would not be qualified. But the basic idea here is he's been married to one woman. And if that woman has died, then he's free to remarry. And I believe, as we in this church believe, that would not disqualify him from being an elder or a deacon. But if he's been married more than once, and that first wife is still alive, um, he would be disqualified. That is the way the church has historically taken this. Good managers of their own children and of their own households. And again, that's something that often is very clear and easy to see. 
I don't think, as we've talked about with elders, that that means that the, that the deacon or the elder is absolutely responsible for everything that his wife or children do in the sense that he could have prevented it. Children and wives are free will agents. And so we cannot make them do what they should do. But that doesn't let him off the hook from that his first responsibility is to his family. And if that family is not doing well, it's not that he would never be suited to be an elder. It doesn't mean that that man is necessarily a bad character because his family isn't doing well. But it does mean he needs to give his attention to his family as much time as he can. And, and that his family needs him more than he needs to be a deacon or an elder. And that's where his priority should be. Those who served well, have served well as deacons, they obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith. Now, it's so important that the Lord, through Paul, added that. He says concerning elders... Back in verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So you'd almost get the idea that if he hadn't said what he did in verse 13, that this was just kind of a secondary class of citizen, being a deacon. Because we're not told it's a fine thing to aspire to be a deacon, but it is a fine thing to aspire to be an elder. And so it's not that, that Paul's over, overlooked something, but again, being led of the Spirit, he, he puts this in at verse 13, the concluding of everything he's saying, saying, this office, when, when handled well, when it, has, when it has been executed well, as God has intended, these deacons obtain for themselves high standing in respect to the church, more than likely, a good standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So in other words, it, it, he, it's, it's not lesser when it comes to the relationship with God and his use of the person and, and the service and benefit that he has to the church and, and what is taking place in his life. It seems to be Paul saying that a deacon who serves well as God intends is going to profit spiritually. This is a good place to be if you want to grow and be prospered spiritually by God, is to, to accept this role and to fulfill it well as God has intended. It, has, it is a role of high standing, and it has great benefit for the person who accepts it. So a little bit more about deacons and elders. In doing some reading on this and, and just preparing for today, I came across some comments from others that I appreciated. One author says, in many churches, deacons misunderstand their role. It's not just deacons that misunderstand it. I've misunderstood it. I, I've never considered myself a church person, per se. I didn't grow up thinking, one day I want to be a pastor. I didn't even go through Bible college and seminary ever thinking that I would be preaching in a church on a regular basis or even serving as an elder in a church. So I just honestly never gave much thought to how the church functions. And so what I've seen with deacons is largely what you have seen. Deacons basically handle the building. They make sure the floors are clean. They make sure the light bulbs work and, they, and that kind of thing. And I've never really thought of deacons as being anything more than that. And so typically I think it would be more fair to say all of us tend to misunderstand the role of a deacon. 
Sometimes they think that they comprise a second group of overseer elders or that they are to provide checks and balances for the shepherds. If deacons control the finances, they often think that they control the church. This should not be. It is plain from everything we have studied that the deacons are subordinate to overseers. The overseers are the elders. We must also understand that shepherds can perform all the functions of the deacons, but deacons cannot perform all the functions of the shepherds. The shepherds are the pastoral body of the church. The shepherds, the elders, are to be able to teach. Deacons don't have to be able to teach to be deacons. And then this author continues and it says, Unlike deacons, shepherds are responsible for the overall leadership, supervision, and teaching of the congregation. This includes handling and overseeing the church's funds. In the sense that shepherds oversee the entire church, they also oversee the deacons. Therefore, deacons are not independent of the leadership oversight of the shepherds. As church leaders, the shepherds need to clarify regularly what the deacons' duties will be. Lack of clarification causes many deacon-related problems because the deaconate is the subordinate office. It commonly struggles with knowing if it is functioning according to what the shepherds want. Yeah, that is true. If shepherds provide poor pastoral leadership for the church, they will frustrate the deacons. Deacons are often strong and influential men who care deeply about people's welfare. Sometimes deacons are more competent and aggressive than the elders are. They get things done. They work hard. Before long, they may become critical of the shepherds, and the shepherds in turn may become intimidated by the deacons. In extreme cases, the shepherds neglect in directing and encouraging the deacons and may cause the deaconate to cease functioning altogether. There are tremendous advantages to having prescribed limited responsibilities for deacons. The shepherd's work is more diverse in general, counseling, teaching, managing, admonishing, directing. Deacons need to understand and appreciate that their responsibilities are more limited so that they can be more focused in serving the Lord's people. We render the deacons a great disservice when we make them the church managers. Shepherds also need to understand that deacons have their own office and duties to perform, and shepherds who don't respect those duties or don't understand the deacon's role will unnecessarily interfere with the deacon's work. And this can make the deacons feel as if they are not trusted. Therefore, good coordination between shepherds and deacons is vital to a smooth working relationship. Amen to all that. Now, what is then their role? If it's not being the janitors of the church, and if it's not being the, those that are in control of everything that happens in the church, and those are the two extremes, and we see that all around us. Many churches, the deacons are expected to do nothing more than just manage the building. Other churches, Southern Baptist churches are this way. The deacons are, for all practical purposes, elders in the church because they have one elder, the senior pastor, and, everybody, and the deacons are, are for really functioning as elders in that church. And they're the ones that, that have um, the, say, the final say in everything. That's not the way God intended. So it would seem that the primary role of the deacon, looking at Acts chapter 6 and the things that are being said here in 1 Corinthians 3, is that they are those who are administrating the church's charitable welfare. Or in other words, they are the official church coordinators of benevolence. As one writer puts it, ministers of mercy. So the focus of those that are deacons 
is people. The focus of the elders is people. They have the same goal. They want people to be brought up, edified, growing, being established in Christ. There's not two different goals. Two different offices, same goal. In that focus, the elders are going to be primarily concerned with preaching and, and or teaching the word and praying. They simply can't handle practically in most churches all the physical needs that people have. So when we say that deacons are responsible for the physical needs of a church, we should be clear we're not talking about the church building. It doesn't take a deacon to make sure the lights come on in the morning or to make sure that the thermostat is working as it should. You don't have to have a specialized office for that. But deacons are people who are ministering to people's physical needs. And so they need to be, for that reason, wise men, godly men, spirit-filled men, because they're coming shoulder to shoulder with people on a regular basis. And, and they're involved in their lives. Sometimes they'll be in their homes and up close to them even more than what the elders will be. They will know the, the ins and outs, the nuts and bolts of their life. And they're there to help them and to use the resources of the church to minister to these people in wise, godly ways. We had a, one time years ago, we had a, a young mo- single mother in the church that um, wanted to have her kids get swimming lessons. And um, she couldn't afford it. And the, and the deacons sp- stepped up and said, we're going to pay for those swimming lessons. One of the elders was upset by that. And he says, that's not what those church funds are for. People didn't, didn't give their money so that we'd be paying for somebody's swimming lessons. And, and the rest of the elders said, those deacons have the Spirit of God. And they don't have any less of the Spirit than we do. And they sought God and believed God unanimously among them of their one mind said, this is a way that we can minister to this young single mother in providing something for her that she wants to do to bless her children. And so we strongly backed her up. It was a good decision those deacons made. Would they do that for every family in the church? No. But that's where the rest of families need to say, let these men be led by the Spirit. And that means you're not making procedures and guidelines for every situation. We have a policy in this church. We are not going to provide swimming lessons for anybody in the church. Why make a policy? Maybe the Spirit wants to provide swimming lessons for somebody in the church. And so that's why they need to be spirit men. You can get anybody to follow policies and to formulate procedures. And then you just become another corporation. But these are to be men who are filled with the Spirit, who are seeking the wisdom of God, and who are willing to break protocol, as it were, because they understand the Spirit is saying, in this situation, this is what I want you to do. They're not acting unbiblically, but they may be acting in a way that is not historical to what the church has done. Well, history can go. God wants to do new things. As long as they're not violating God's word and they're being moved by what God is doing, then we as a church should always give amen. Praise God. Let them do that. That's what we want. Spirit-filled men. And so the elders need to encourage them to do that. Seek God in prayer. Look what he wants to do. And, and, And be involved where God wants you to be involved. Your role is about people, 
meeting people's physical, practical needs. And there should be nobody that's overlooked with that. So it is a high calling to be a deacon. And it's so much more than just taking care, again, of a building. But neither is it being a quasi-elder. There is a difference here that God is making. They are both vital roles. The church needs them both. It is a formal office. It is a, it is a position of service. Um, they are officiating a position, a, 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 um, responsibilities of trust in the church. There are so many things that we can say about them. Now, one of the things, just briefly, because we're about out of time, is this verse 11 that I skipped. Why is it even there? In the context of deacons, before and afterwards, about, then it speaks of women. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Four things there about women. Well, what women? And so the church has really struggled with this. It doesn't seem to be all women, because he spoke about all women back in chapter 2. And this would be just way out of the flow of Paul's argument to jump back to chapter 2 here and then go back to deacons again. So what the church has typically done is said this is either a deaconess office, an office of female deacons, or this is applied to the wives of deacons. And again, I am, am not the final word on this, and, and, and it's something that every church has to work through. Um, I, I believe I don't personally have any problem with an office of deaconess um, as long as those women who are functioning as deaconesses are, are ministering to women and they are not in a position of teaching or exercising authority over men. I think the church has the freedom to have that office. But because it doesn't speak of the office of deacon, I tend to think that the weight here would be on saying that Paul is speaking about the wives of deacons here. Why would he do that? And why doesn't he speak about the wives of elders? Well, again, great question. This writer says, Why, people often ask, are the wives of deacons mentioned and not the wives of overseers? The answer lies in the nature of the deaconette, which is not a teaching, governing office like the eldership. So pastors and elders teach and govern the whole church. Their wives are not to assist in the governing of the church. Why not? Because Paul's already said, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, and that's what elders do. And so when a, if a wife is trying to, to function as a co-elder with her husband, then he is violating what Paul has said in 1 Timothy. And so women cannot be co-elders with their husbands who are elders. It's not permitted. But she can function with her husband deacon, because that role is not a teaching authority role over the church. So the deaconette, on the other hand, provides loving service to the needy. Wives can assist their deacon husbands in the service without violating their God-ordained role in the local church. Why can we assume that deacons' wives perform um, deacon service? The answer is there's no reason to list requirements for deacons' wives if they did not play a role in that kind of service. And so, so precisely because the deacons' wives help in some way, Paul requires them to meet qualifications nearly identical to those of their husbands. So in other words, group of men deacons, and they're responsible to, to know what's going on in the church in their practical, physical needs, and to address those needs as the Spirit would lead. Many times, those people in greatest need are the women in the church. 
And it's just simply not always appropriate for a man to be there alone or even with another man trying to minister to that woman. It doesn't, it's not appropriate. It doesn't look good. It brings opportunity for accusation that's false. And so it just is wise for that man to have his wife there. Well, if she's there, then she, again, she's going to be privy to things that don't need to be talked about. And so she can't be a gossip. She can't have a loose tongue. She needs to be a woman who can step into that situation and everybody can have the confidence it's not going to be blabbed around the church. It's just kept private as a private matter as it should be. And so that's why it says not malicious gossips, dignified, temperate, faithful in all things. So the deacon's wives should also be considered when a man is being considered to be a deacon. Really goes without saying. At his hill, we hire a married man. I've learned over the years, um, meet the wife. And as they say on Duck Dynasty, happy wife, happy life, right? And it's also true in ministry. And that guy can be, you know, right up there with Jesus. But if his wife is not happy and doesn't want to be there, it's not working. And so it's a very unique ministry we have at His Hill. It's a community, and not everybody is able to live well in small, tight community. And, and if that wife can't embrace it, it's just not going to work. And so we've learned over the years, we've got to interview them both. And, and it's, it's amazing, just it's showing a prospective staff couple the prospective housing they might live in. Usually that's all you have to do. It's just open the door and let them walk in and look at the wife. And you'll know whether it's going to work or not. She's got to be happy. She's got to be equally yoked with her husband and willing to, to live the life that God is calling him to as being her calling as well. And, it, uh, and it's the same thing in the church. If you're going to appoint deacons, look at the wife. These things need to be true of them. Final word is, again, I hope you can sense the wisdom of God in all that he is saying in his word. It is so good. Men couldn't have come up with this. You know, when we're in charge, we subordinate people to roles that demean them, or we put people in such elevated positions that they think that they are the one that's in control of everything. And both of those are wrong. Here we have people that are treated in dignity. They're given great responsibility. But there's, whether it's in the eldership or among the deacons, a plurality, a plurality of leadership, shared responsibility. I've come to think is just in the last week or so, just meditating on this more than I have in a long time, that that shared leadership among elders and deacons is not to practically distribute the workload. That is a secondary point. The primary point, as in all God says, comes back to himself and what is true of him. And as I said concerning elders, they are not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is. And when it comes to plurality of eldership, why does God do that? It is not simply to distribute the workload among the elders and the deacons equitably and fairly. But that, too, is a picture of the Godhead. Even though Jesus is the head of the church... There is nothing that Jesus does independent of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Theologians say try to find one activity of God that is done in independence of the other two persons. Everything that God does, he does in unison, in harmony with all three persons. 
And so would we think that it would, should be anything different in the church of God? Because this is, the life of Christ is being expressed in the church. And that's why there's plurality of, of elders and plurality of deacons. It's not so that, the, so that they have an easier workload. It's so that the headship of Jesus Christ is being displayed in that church, and Jesus does nothing on his own. Neither should elders and neither should deacons. They work in concert, in harmony with those that God has placed them with. And in that, again, God is glorified and magnified in the church. And I'll close this in prayer. Thank you, Father, again for your wisdom, for your grace, God, working in us as you have, redeeming us, saving us, delivering us, God, from our sin, restoring us, God, to relationship with you, that we could even be have any hope, God, of being used by you in any sense, whether in an office or not. It is simply your grace, God, that you would take us and use us to be a blessing in the lives of others. And we do thank you for that grace. It is because of the death and resurrection of Christ that we have commemorated this morning, Lord, that we have any hope at all. We thank you for the body of Christ, Lord, for the local church. There is nothing else like it on earth. And I pray, God, that we would cherish it as you do, that we would pray for our body and seek its welfare, Lord, that we would believe the best, stay with the facts, and go directly to those who are in a position to do something about the problems that arise in faith and trust, Lord, and that we would in all things, individually, Lord, as well as elders and deacons, God, that we would be truly surrendering to the headship of Jesus Christ, wanting him to be honored and him to be glorified in everything that we say and do. We pray, God, that we would be humble and careful and wise before you, Lord, in our relations with each other, that we would seek to build up, Lord, to speak words that edify and give grace and help in the time of need. And, Lord, in the practical ways that we can help, that we would have generous hearts because we've been moved by your Spirit to give as you have so freely given to us having lavished upon us the very grace of God. Thank you, Father, for how you are working and all that you have done in this church over the years. But we know, Lord, we need your protection, and we know that we, need to, we haven't arrived and that we can always um, grow and that Christ can increasingly be magnified among us, and we pray that he would be. And we do thank you, Father, for your wisdom in distributing the responsibility not to make a workload easier, but that again, so that the headship of Christ and the unity and harmony of the Godhead would be expressed among us. And in that, God, that there would be dignity and honor and that you, Lord, would truly be blessed and praised in this body that you've raised up. In Christ's name, amen.